The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. February 23, 2003. Clanharan, South Wales. The peace and quiet of this former mining village is disrupted by the blaring of police sirens. Officers of the South Wales Police Force converge on a modest house at the end of a row of stone-built properties on Bridgend Road. The curtains are drawn, but then again, they always are. The man who lives here, 38-year-old security guard Geoffrey Gafour, lives in a permanent, solitary darkness. Working nights, shutting out the daylight behind the second-hand drapes he bought in a charity shop. As is often said of men like Gafour, he likes to keep himself to himself. Receiving no answer, the police are forced to break down the front door. The house is eerily quiet. The police, led by Detective Inspector Brent Perry, fear Gafour has escaped their reach forever. They've been watching him for days now. They know that he has visited at least three separate pharmacies purchasing the means to take his own life. Their worst fears are confirmed when they find a number of empty paracetamol packets. The drug is widely available and normally taken as a painkiller. An overdose can be fatal. And yet, Gafour is conscious when the police find him. He turns to face D.I. Perry as if he has been expecting him. But before Gafour can say anything, he starts to convulse. He's carried into a waiting ambulance, police and paramedics in attendance. Despite the drugs overtaking his body, Gafour manages to utter a few words. Just for the record, I did kill Annette White. I've been waiting for this for 15 years. Whatever happens, I did deserve it. I sincerely hope I die. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Jeffrey Gafour, of the words he spoke in the back of a speeding ambulance as he believed he was dying. It's about a young woman hacked to death in a savage knife attack. It's about false accusations and a false confession. It's about a community divided by lies and fear. It's about one man's silence and five men's innocence. It's about one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in Britain. About the pioneering DNA science that finally led to the true killer. And it's about that killer's final desperate bid to escape justice. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. We're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. 
Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. For D.I. Perry and his team of detectives, this is more than just the arrest of a murderer. This is the chance to heal a community and to restore the damaged reputation of the South Wales police force. But are they too late? Will Jeffrey Gafour escape justice by dying? The crime he has just confessed to took place almost exactly 15 years earlier. Lynette White was killed in a brutal attack in a rundown apartment above a bookmaker's shop. In the years since, the bloodstains left by her murder have been painted over because they were impossible to cleanse. Those stains held the secret of the killer's identity. The DNA material in them has had to wait till now to come to light, sealed in and preserved by paint for all these years. Unlocking this evidence is the key to solving the case and catching the true killer. Lynette White's childhood was not easy. Shortly before her death, she tells a BBC Wales reporter that at the age of 14, she was drugged, bundled in a car, and driven to Bristol where she was forced into sex work. Lynette does what she has to do to survive. She escapes from the sex traffickers and moves back to Wales, settling in the Butte Town district of Cardiff. There, she earns her living as a sex worker. Modern-day Butte Town was built on the ruins of the legendary Tiger Bay, which was bulldozered in the name of slum clearance. Its historic Edwardian and Victorian streets and squares were replaced by soulless concrete tower blocks. But a vibrant, multicultural community lives on within their drab confines. Butte Town is a square mile like no other in Wales. Drawn by the docks, people of every color, nationality, and ethnicity live side by side. They drink together in the pubs, dance together in the clubs, fall in love, marry, argue, fight, and make up. There's a strong sense of community, of family even. People look out for one another. To some though, the area around the docks is seen as a rough neighborhood, a place of sleaze, drug addiction, and criminality. They view its diverse racial makeup not as a source of strength, but as a cause for suspicion. If they visit it at all, it is to score weed or buy sex. Despite its rough reputation and the unconventional lifestyles of its residents, Butte Town is a close-knit community. At the time of her death, Lynette is well known to the sex workers, pimps, and drug dealers who eke out their precarious livings around the docks. She's often seen in the pubs and takeaway restaurants and is on nodding acquaintance with the club doormen and taxi drivers. Her friends describe her as a lovely, carefree, caring girl. Her enemies in less flattering terms. The way they tell it, she's only out for herself. She has a reputation for muscling in on other sex workers' territories. More dangerous still, there are whispers she's a police informant. One thing everyone agrees on. She's never afraid to speak her mind 
especially after a few drinks in the North Star pub. Mouthy is a word that crops up. But is any of this enough for someone to want her dead? And if so, who? Lynette White's body is discovered in a flat at 7 James Street on the 14th of February, 1988. Valentine's Day. At the time of her death, Lynette is 20 years old. She has been missing for several days. The alarm is raised by Lynette's friend, fellow sex worker Leanne Vilday. She has lent Lynette the keys to the James Street flat, which Leanne rents for business purposes. Leanne goes round to the flat to get the keys back, but she can't raise Lynette. Her annoyance turns to fear. Every girl who works the streets knows the risks. The next John you go with might be the one who turns nasty. Leanne has an uneasy feeling that something is wrong. She fetches the police. Police Constable Anthony Prosser has seen dead bodies before, but nothing can prepare him for the scene that confronts him now. Lynette is lying on the floor, surrounded by a pool of her own blood. She's fully clothed, except for her black leather coat, which is half on, her arm through one sleeve. The bleak, unfurnished flat is the kind of place that girls like Lynette bring their clients. The electricity is disconnected. The only light is the amber glow from the street. The only furniture is a single, bare divan. PC Prosser calls it in. A murder investigation is underway. The violence of the attack shocks even the pathologist who is called to examine the body. Lynette has been stabbed over 50 times. Her throat has been cut. The wound is so deep, it has almost severed the neck. The level of savagery sends shockwaves throughout the community and beyond. Whoever killed Lynette inflicted far more wounds than were strictly necessary to take her life. This is a sadistic display of rage with an apparently sexual motive it indicates an attacker who harbors a deep and violent hatred towards women. It would be understandable if the local police feel out of their depth. They're used to dealing with crimes like drug offenses, curb crawling, or soliciting. At worst, the occasional assault charge when a drunken brawl gets out of hand. At the same time, they're under pressure to crack the case. A brutal crime like this is not good for Cardiff's image. Local politicians are desperate for inward investment. The unsolved murder of a sex worker does not sit well with gentrification. Detectives initially pursue the theory that Lynette was killed by a client. Sex work is a dangerous business. Almost everyone who engages in it will experience violence in the course of their work, often extreme assault or even rape. The police ask other local sex workers if they've encountered any men who behaved violently or abusively anything at all out of the ordinary. They also round up known clients of sex workers. In the meantime, news of the murder is splashed all over the local papers and makes it onto the regional TV bulletins. As a result, witnesses come forward and give the police their first break. A white male with bloody hands had been seen in the vicinity of 7 James Street. He is described as behaving oddly, cowering in a doorway, mumbling incoherently and sobbing. Witnesses describe his distinctive dark brown hair, lank and swept to one side. A police sketch is released, 
It is in every newspaper in the country and broadcast on Crime Watch, a peak time show in the UK. The police have their suspect. According to Detective Chief Superintendent John Williams, this man has almost certainly had the blood of the deceased on his hands. With hindsight, it's easy to say that the gaunt, white face staring blankly out from TV screens bears a striking resemblance to the man who, 15 years later, believing himself about to die, finally confesses to the murder of Lynette White. When police draw a blank with the photo fit broadcast on Crime Watch, they turn their attention to Lynette's known associates. Starting with 22-year-old Stephen Miller, Lynette's boyfriend, after all, around 50% of women murdered by men are killed by their partner or ex. But Miller's reaction isn't that of a murderer's. When the police tell him Lynette's dead, Miller breaks down in tears. Theirs is a stormy relationship. Miller admits that they had had an argument five days ago, after which Lynette walked out of the flat they shared never to return. Added to this, Miller is a cocaine user dependent on Lynette's earnings to support his habit. However, none of these facts make him a murderer. Since Lynette's disappearance, Miller has been walking the streets searching for her, out of his mind with worry. When he is picked up by police, he is still wearing the same clothes he's had on the whole time he's been looking for her. Filthy as they are, there's no sign of blood on them. Most conclusively of all, Forensic investigators have found blood which is not Lynette's on her clothes and at the crime scene. Type AB. It must be from her murderer. A simple blood test proves that it's not Stephen Miller's blood. Miller is released without charge and eliminated from the inquiry. The blood found at the crime scene will eventually prove crucial in identifying Lynette's real murderer. The type AB blood found at the scene is found in around 4% of the UK population. In 1988, that would be just over 2 million people. But the forensic scientists are able to narrow it down even further than that. The blood on Lynette's genes, as well as being AB, is also found to belong to a very rare subgrouping that is shared by a much smaller proportion of the population, approximately 1 in 3,800 or around 100 people in Cardiff at the time. Blood tests also reveal Y chromosomes, meaning that the blood belongs to a man. So that would have the number of potential matches in the Cardiff population to around 50. The experts conclude that all the AB blood found in the flat comes from one source, a man who, in addition, belongs to this very rare blood grouping. They are certain that this individual is Lynette's killer. While not as precise a tool as DNA, it is certainly enough to eliminate suspects. With this forensic information in hand, the police pursue two main theories. The first is that Lynette was killed to silence her. At the time of her death, she was due to testify as a witness in two criminal trials, including one for attempted murder. Could her murder be linked to that case? It would certainly provide a strong motive. But as with Stephen Miller, there is no forensic evidence linking anyone in these cases to the murder scene. A second theory revolves around a man that police identify as Mr. X, a convicted sex offender and pedophile also known to use sex workers. But forensic analysis proves that he is not the murderer.
By November 1988, the police have nothing. As the pressure on them to crack the case increases, they grow desperate. They decide that if they can't rely on the forensic evidence to help them, they'll look for the solution elsewhere. All police forces have lists of known offenders who they would like to get off the streets. Persistent, petty criminals, local troublemakers, pimps with a habit of beating up their girls, professional shoplifters, bouncers who are a little too handy with their fists and maybe do a spot of drug dealing on the side. The police also have connections with members of the criminal underworld, some of whom bear grudges. Maybe they'd like to get the same people out of the way for reasons of their own. So they point the finger. It starts with rumors in the pubs where cops and criminals rub shoulders at the bar. A word to the wise, and not in the right direction. Certain individuals come into the frame. There's nothing concrete against them, but when the police are under pressure, maybe they lose perspective. They start to see their job as building a case against the names that keep coming up. They look for witnesses who can corroborate what they're hearing on the grapevine. Or, if necessary, who can be persuaded to corroborate it. The police now hone in on four potential witnesses who fit that bill. Mark Gromick and Paul Atkins. Angela Sela and Leanne Vilday. All four are, to varying degrees, vulnerable individuals. Mark Gromick lives in the apartment above the one where Lynette is murdered. So, naturally, the police want to speak to him. And Paul Atkins is on their radar because he is with Gromick on the night of the murder. They are potentially key witnesses, as long as they say what the police want to hear. Both Atkins and Gromick have criminal records and have served time for crimes ranging from attempted armed robbery to shoplifting. They are also both gay. At a time when society was far less accepting of homosexuality, that makes them susceptible to police pressure. On top of that, Atkins has learning difficulties and can barely read or write. Perhaps because of his previous history with the police, Gromick's first instinct is to lie. In fact, he never stops lying. After making a number of contradictory statements, Gromick settles on a narrative that places two black men, Yusuf Abdullah and Ronnie Acti, at 7 James Street on the night of Lynette's murder, together with a white man called Tucker and an unnamed black man with dreadlocks. Gromick reports hearing raised voices and horrible screams from the apartment below his. In this account, his companion Paul Atkins goes downstairs to investigate. Atkins comes back to tell Gromick that there is a murdered girl downstairs. Coincidentally, perhaps, two of the men Gromick incriminates, Abdullah and Acti, are already known to the police. They are, in fact, on their list of undesirables. Atkins's testimony is equally unreliable. At one point, he even accuses Gromick of murdering Lynette, saying that he did it for the money. 45 pounds, apparently. Soon after, he confesses to the murder himself, saying he met Lynette in a pub and then went back to James Street for sex before stabbing her. The detectives questioning him treat this with skepticism, given Atkins's apparent sexuality. With police encouragement, his version of events comes more in line with Gromick's, though there are still serious discrepancies. The police focus on Leanne Vilday because she was the one who found Lynette's body. Perhaps she knows more about what happened than she's letting on. Like Lynette, Leanne Vilday is a sex worker. She also has a baby son, 
The police threaten that he will be taken into care if she doesn't cooperate. Leanne just wants to get out of there. Every hour she's in the police station, she's away from her son. Not only that, she's losing income. She tells them what they want to hear. The fourth of the police's star witnesses is Angela Sayla. She too is a sex worker and a known associate of both Lynette and Leanne. The police focus on her because she lives across the street from the James Street apartment, so she would have had a good view of the comings and goings there. Angela Sila also has learning difficulties, which makes her extremely suggestible. There's one other thing about Sila too. After she's raped and assaulted by John, it comes to light that she has an extremely rare grouping of type AB blood, shared by just one in 3,800 people. The exact same grouping was found on Lynette's genes. The police are excited. They think they have a breakthrough. They believe they can place Sayla at the scene when Lynette is killed. Although to do so, they are forced to ignore the inconvenient fact that the blood found on Lynette was proven to be from a man. Trusting their hunches more than the forensic evidence, they pile on the pressure. Finally, under relentless interrogation, Angela Sila cracks. She confesses to taking part in the murder herself, claiming that she was forced to cut Lynette's throat and wrists to ensure her silence. Somehow, the police succeed in extracting a similar confession from Leanne Vilde. There are many inconsistencies between the statements made by Gromick, Atkins, Vilde, and Sayla. There are also some bizarre and highly implausible details that make us wonder how anyone could have ever taken them seriously. Despite that, the police construct a narrative and a case around these four witnesses' garbled accounts. Between them, they place five men in the flat at the time of Lynette's murder. The five men are Yusuf Abdullai, a dock worker and occasional drug dealer, John Acti, a bouncer with a reputation as a hard man. His cousin, Ronnie Acti, a small-time hustler. Tony Paris, a professional shoplifter. And Stephen Miller, Lynette White's boyfriend and pimp. Five names the police have been picking up consistently in barroom chatter. They will become known as the Cardiff Five, the central figures in one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in Britain. The five men were arrested between the 7th and 9th of December, 1988. The only forensic evidence remotely connecting any of them with a the crime is that Abdullah is found to have type AB blood. But that is hardly conclusive, as 4% of the population share type AB blood. In 1988, that would have been 14,800 people in Cardiff alone, or over 2 million people in the UK as a whole. What is certain is that his blood does not belong to the extremely rare grouping found on Lynette's genes. That should be enough to rule him out. The police, however, believe that they have an answer to that. If you remember, Angela Sayla's blood matches the extremely rare type found on Lynette White's genes. For that reason, the police suspect she must have had something to do with Lynette's murder. There is only one problem with their theory. The blood found on Lynette's genes also contains Y chromosomes, meaning that it is from a man. 
It couldn't be Angela Sela's. To get through this impasse, the police concoct a highly improbable theory that somehow Sela's blood became mixed with Abdullah's blood, also type AB, and the resulting cocktail is what was found on Lynette's jeans. But it has already been determined that the blood found at the scene belonged to only one person. As Professor Dave Barkley, head of physical evidence at the National Crime Faculty, will later point out, every subsequent test, whether Y-chromosome or DNA, failed to support this new hypothesis or directly contradicted it. Just to be clear, Professor Barkley describes the theory as an entirely mythical and scientifically ludicrous version of events. We can be even clearer. There is no forensic evidence whatsoever placing any of the five men at the crime scene. On top of that, they all provide alibis for the night of the murder. In Yusuf Abdullah's case, 13 separate witnesses confirmed that he was 10 miles away working on a ship in Barrie. All five men are black or mixed race. None of them bear the slightest resemblance to the pale-skinned figure in the police sketch. And don't forget, the forensic evidence overwhelmingly indicates a single male perpetrator with a very rare blood type, which none of the five suspects have. Why then are the police so convinced that these five men, some of whom barely know each other, have somehow conspired together to murder a sex worker who is connected to only one of them? It's a difficult question to answer because on the face of it, it makes no sense at all. Admittedly, all of the men are known to the police. John Acty, for example, is known as a troublemaker, who the police suspect of having connections with West Indian organized crime groups, while Tony Paris has a nice little business shoplifting to order. They are all most likely drug users who do a spot of dealing as a sideline. It's all pretty small-time stuff, a long way short of the vicious murder they stand accused of now. So why them? It's a question the five men will ask themselves many times over the years. The only answer they can come up with is that they're targeted because of their race. In Stephen Miller's case, there's no doubt the police are also influenced by a psychological profile provided by Professor David Cantor, at the time a leading expert in offender profiling. Cantor argues that Lynette's murderer is not just known to her, he has a relationship with her. Cantor categorically states that the killer is not a John. Also that the murderer has poor mental abilities and is already known to the police. All of which points to Stephen Miller, all of which is wrong. If you remember, Miller has already been cleared of any involvement in Lynette's murder. But it's a sign of the police's desperation that they are willing to disregard the results of their own previous investigation. They prefer to accept Professor Cantor's highly speculative theories instead. Cantor recommends that the killer will confess if subjected to forceful interviewing. The police now turn their attention to following this aspect of Professor Cantor's advice. Under sustained and extremely forceful interviewing, Stephen Miller eventually confesses to murdering Lynette. Conveniently for the police, he even implicates the four other men. But the fact is, Stephen Miller only makes his confession after being subjected to a grueling 13 hours of interrogation over five days. He is denied legal representation in his first two interviews. 
Before confessing, he makes 307 denials, and he retracts his confession soon after making it. It may also be relevant that Miller has a mental age of 11. In the transcripts of his confessions, it's clear that he is being led by the police. One detective asks him, okay, it would appear that some injuries have been inflicted at the end of the bed, as opposed to alongside of the bed. Now, does that ring any bells? The police even seem aware of what they are doing. At one point, the same detective says, so without giving too much away to you, because I don't want to tell you the scene, so that you can describe it as a result of me telling you. And yet that is precisely what he does. As a result of Miller's confession and the unreliable evidence of four vulnerable witnesses, Stephen Miller, John Acty, Ronnie Acty, Tony Paris, and Yusuf Abdullah are charged with the murder of Lynette White. The trial eventually takes place in May 1990. Miller, Abdullah, and Paris are found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. The two Acty cousins are acquitted. The verdict ignores the gaping holes in the police case against the men. It also defies logic. Because if one of these men is not guilty, they all are. Lawyers for the convicted men launch an appeal. The audio tapes of Stephen Miller's police interviews are played at the hearing in 1992. The presiding judge, Lord Taylor, calls the interview a travesty, saying that Miller had been bullied and hectored by police. He goes on. Short of physical violence, it is hard to conceive of a more hostile and intimidating approach by officers to a suspect. Stephen Miller's confession is found to be false. The convictions are overturned on appeal. Four years after they were first arrested, the Cardiff Three have finally been cleared of murdering Lynette White. The question now is, if the Cardiff Five didn't murder Lynette, who did? It will be over 10 years before that question can be answered. When Jeffrey Gafford will make his own confession in the back of a speeding ambulance. But how can we be sure that the confession is any more credible than Stephen Miller's? And what links Jeffrey Gafford to Lynette White? To answer those questions, we have to go back to 1988 once more. In 1988, Kafour was unknown to the police. He had no known connection with the victim, or Butte Town. He is 23 years old, living with his sister and her husband. He shares the couple's flat over the corner shop they run in the Cateus suburb of Cardiff, close to the university. It's an area of solid, respectable-looking Victorian terraces, of leafy parks and tree-lined squares. Just three miles away is Butte Town and the docks, where Lynette White earns her living and will meet her death. Barely three miles separate the two districts, and yet they are a world apart. So what draws Gafour from his quiet life over the corner shop to the docks and his fatal meeting with Lynette White? One of five siblings, the son of a white Welsh mother and an Indian father, Gafour leaves school at 16. He has no qualifications, but by all accounts is an avid reader. He gets a job loading lorries in a warehouse. Gafour also pays for his keep by helping out in his sister's shop. As a young man, Gafour is an introvert. Painfully shy, he lacks confidence with the opposite sex and doesn't make friends easily. 
According to the sister he's living with, he doesn't do drugs, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. He spends his time reading books, watching TV, and working. Despite his sister's rose-tinted view of his abstemious lifestyle, by his own admission, he would occasionally sneak out and go on drinking binges. He has his own side door to the flat and can come and go without drawing attention. He also has a hobby which his sister doesn't know about. He collects knives. But Gafford never becomes a person of interest in the Lynette White investigation. He's too far below the police's radar. When Stephen Miller, Yusuf Abdullah, and Tony Paris are released after their appeal in 1992, Gafford leaves Wales and settles in Germany. The South Wales police make a public statement that they are not looking for anyone else in connection with Lynette White's murder. Even so, Gafford decides to play it safe. In Germany, he withdraws behind closed curtains into a world of semi-darkness and seclusion, leaving his house only to go to work, speaking only when spoken to, although he does draw attention at one point for expressing his stern disapproval of pornography. Also in 1992, despite trying to lie low, Gafford comes to the police's attention for the first time, and it's for a violent assault. While at work, he attacks a colleague with a house brick. The attack may seem out of character to those who know Gafford only as a quiet recluse who wouldn't hurt a fly. But it does suggest a problem controlling rage that is consistent with the deadly attack on Lynette White. He receives a sentence of community service for the assault. Gafford keeps up his low-key lifestyle when he eventually returns to Wales and settles in Llanharan. He has no friends, no social contacts at all. He cuts himself off from his family completely. So what is it that finally brings the police to his door in 2003? Despite police indifference in the case, campaigners keep up the pressure for justice following the Cardiff Three's successful appeal. Advances in forensic science, particularly in the area of DNA, lead to the case being reopened in 1995. Operation Mistral begins, led by Chief Superintendent Kevin O'Neill. There will be no more hunches, no more flying in the face of the evidence. From now on, it's all about rigor and sticking to the drill. The work of forensic scientists Angela Gallup and Professor David Barkley proves crucial in uncovering new DNA evidence. The team goes back to the original witness statements. The man seen in the doorway at the time of the murder was described as having blood on his hands. It's reasonable to assume that the murderer cut himself. In the frenzy of the attack, his hand could have slipped down the blood-drenched handle of the knife, causing him to slash his palm on the blade. They return to the flat above the bookmakers in James Street. It's been redecorated since the crime, but to David Barkley, that's a good thing. The paint will have sealed in traces of previously undetected blood, blood that may belong to the murderer. Remembering that there had been no electricity in the flat on the night of Lynette's murder, Professor Barkley conducts an unusual experiment. He blindfolds himself and mimes committing a frenzied knife attack. He then attempts to flee the crime scene. Whenever he places his hand as he blunders about, the forensic team peel away the paint to look for traces of blood. 
In total, they discover 13 separate sources of blood. There's also a large drop of cast-off blood under the window. More blood is discovered behind the skirting board, on the doorway to the flat, and on the walls of the living room and hallway. They also find blood on a scrap of cellophane from a cigarette packet. As a result, this new, as yet unidentified suspect becomes known as Mr. Cellophane. The blood is not Lynette's. It doesn't belong to any of the Cardiff Five either. The team checked the police DNA database. No match. In 2002, 14 years after Lynette's murder and two years after Professor Barkley and his team uncover new blood samples in the James Street flat, a further advance in DNA science allows the police to finally identify the killer. Using a groundbreaking process known as familial searching, scientists identify an individual whose DNA is a close enough match to indicate they are related to Lynette's killer. This turns out to be a 14-year-old youth who had fallen foul of the law. Jeffrey Gafour's nephew. It's not long before the police call on Gafour at the building where he works as a security guard. They tell him they have come in connection with the murder of Lynette White. Gafour replies, Haven't you got someone for that? He consents to give a DNA sample. Gafour is no fool. From the moment the police swab his mouth, he knows it's only a question of time before they come for him. Maybe he should have refused to give a sample, but that would have only made them suspicious. So he does it to buy time, living from one moment to the next now. But he can feel the net closing in on him. The man who has kept a lid on his emotions for over a decade is losing control of events. And there's only one way to take it back. While the police are waiting for the results of his DNA test, he makes a last desperate bid to escape justice. He takes his own life. Or, at least, that is his intention. As the police move through the silent gloom of Gafour's house towards their suspect, an ominous feeling grips them. They are convinced they have their man, and Gafour's suicide attempt seems to confirm it. What they fear now, as the ambulance rushes Gafour to the Princess of Wales Hospital in Bridgend, is that they are too late. Too late to bring Lynette White's killer to justice. Too late to get the answers to the questions they are longing to put to the man they have waited 15 years to arrest. More than anything, they want to know what happened to provoke the frenzied attack that left Lynette White dead. It's not just the police who want answers. Many others do, too. Not least the five men who were wrongly accused of Lynette's murder. Their lives have been ruined, not just by his crime, but also by his silence. For years, they have had to endure suspicion and false accusation. Even after their names were cleared, there were still many in Cardiff, especially the police, who continued to believe they were guilty. The least they deserve is some kind of explanation. Jeffrey Gafour took away Lynette White's life. Brutally, viciously, mercilessly. But he destroyed many other lives, too. He destroyed the lives of Lynette's family and friends, 
Her father and brother died without ever knowing the truth of what happened to her, still believing that the Card of Five were responsible. Gafor's crime tore apart a community. The whole of Cardiff was in pain. This was a suffering that Gafor could have ended at any time. But as he lies in the back of a speeding ambulance, Gafor's not ready to give his answers yet. In fact, it looks like he will die without ever explaining what really happened that night in Butte Town. A strange peace has come over him. It seems that by his deathbed confession, he believes he has done enough to ease his conscience. The police found Bibles among the large number of books at his house. Now, as death rushes on him, Gafor is more concerned with the afterlife than the lives he has ruined. In the ambulance, he confides to the paramedics. This must be my last two days on Earth. I'm quite looking forward to seeing if God and the devil exist. He is not just ready for death. He welcomes it. Gafor is so desperate to die that he refuses treatment. He is overheard telling hospital staff, The reason they're concerned is because I killed someone 15 years ago. At least I can die with a clear conscience. For what it's worth. And so Gafor makes not one but two deathbed confessions. Having kept his terrible secret for 15 years, now he can't stop telling people. But there are signs his fear of dying is getting to him. One of the doctors treating him asks him if he knows what will happen to him as the paracetamol overdose takes hold. His liver will fail and it won't be pleasant. Gafor starts throwing up, violently, painfully, uncontrollably. This is not the blissful slide into oblivion that he had foreseen. At last, he allows the antidote to be administered. As the drip that will feed the life-saving drug into his blood is inserted, Gafor closes his eyes and lets his head sink back into his pillow. Jeffrey Gafor does not die. He does not escape justice. He recovers fully from his suicide attempt and is taken to court in a blue sweatshirt and handcuffs to stand trial for the murder of Lynette White 15 years earlier. As he arrives at court, it's fair to say that he does not look like most people's idea of a murderer, whatever that is. Many of the waiting journalists are unsure that this bespectacled, nondescript-looking man is the brutal killer they had been waiting to catch a glimpse of. Could this insignificant nobody be responsible for the frenzied attack that had left Lynette White dead? Her head almost severed from her body, with over 50 knife wounds in her torso? Gafor pleads guilty. He is sentenced to life with a minimum term of 13 years, a lighter sentence than that given to the three men who were originally and wrongly convicted. There is one question to which he never provides an adequate answer. Why? Why did he kill Annette White? When pressed, Gafor claims his memory of the crime is fuzzy and dreamlike. Yes, he went to Lynette for sex, but changed his mind and demanded his money back. She refused. Gafor lost his temper, lashing out with a knife, one from his secret collection. If Gafor is to be believed, 
Lynette White was killed over an argument for 30 pounds. Perhaps that motive is easier for him to accept than the one that he seems to have worked hard to suppress for so many years. That he is an out-of-control, sadistic, sexually motivated killer. There is no doubt that Gafor's ambulance deathbed confession is genuine. He turns out to be one of the 100 people in Cardiff whose blood type matches the rare grouping found on Lynette's genes. More conclusively than that, the DNA evidence connects him with Lynette White at the moment of her death. It's sobering to think, however, that if his nephew hadn't got on the wrong side of the law, Jeffrey Gafour might still be lurking behind the curtains in Bridge End Road today. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We dive deep into the pool where Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones drowned. We shine the spotlight on his brief but brilliant career. We explore his darker side too. The drink, the drugs, the teenage pregnancies. We uncover the tensions and quarrels that led him to leaving the band and try to unravel what really happened the night he died. And we meet Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who was in the pool with Brian Jones that night. He was the last person to see Brian alive. And many years later, will allegedly make a shocking deathbed confession, suggesting that Brian Jones's death was no accident, but murder. For more information on Jeffrey Gafour, the Cardiff Five, and the murder of Lynette White amongst the many sources we used, we found the Cardiff Five, Innocent Beyond Any Doubt by Satish Sakar, Bloody Valentine, the story of Britain's worst miscarriage of justice by John L. Williams, and Making Murderers by Sari Jackson, particularly helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Tom Pink. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. <laughs>